Hey, welcome into Positive Light. We're bringing a positive influence in this world and into your life. And hi, I'm Bob Miles. And today's subject is going to be on God makes all things good. It says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance out of James 1, 2, and 3. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, out of Romans 8:28. So do all things work together for good? All things are not good. It would be mockery to say that they are. The death of a child is not good. Cancer is not good. Drug addictions is not good. War is not good. Blasphemy is not good. What's going on around this world today? A lot of it is not good. But the Bible says, We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. In the chemistry of the cross, God takes things that in and of themselves are bad, and he puts them together, much as a chemist might take chemicals that in of themselves may be deleterious and mixes them to make a medicine that brings healing. Many of us have some salt with our meals. Table salt is made up of both sodium and chloride. By itself, sodium is deadly poison, and so is chloride. Put them together, and you have table salt. Salt flavors food, and a certain amount of salt is necessary for health and life. We cannot live without some salt in our systems. God can take things that are bad and put them in the crucible of his wisdom and love. He works all things together for good, and he gives us the glorious, wonderful promise that he will do so. We know that we have victory over sin and over Satan, but this verse in Romans teaches us that we also have victory over our circumstances. It says, all things work together for good. I want to point out five things about this promise in Romans 8.28 so that we can see how God works together to help us rise above our circumstances. The first thing is the certainty of the promise. Notice how the verse begins. We know this is not conjecture. This is not happenstance. This is not perhaps. This is not maybe. This is ironclad certainty. We know that all things work together for good. It's not a hope, not a vague opinion. Sometimes it may look as if God's plans ebbs and flows, but in God's timing, his plan will be high tide. We can be certain we live by his promises. And the second thing is completeness of the promise. We know that all things work together for good. That's a big promise, but it's there and it's absolutely certain. God is a teacher who, by our standards, seems strange. He gives the test first, and then he gives the lesson. We learn through affliction. Think about Joseph in the Bible. Think of, of all the terrible things that happened to Joseph. He was maligned by his brothers. He was thrown into a pit and sold as a slave. He was lied about and accused of rape. Then he languished in prison. But Joseph, as he looked back, and something that is much like Romans 8.28, talking to his brothers, Joseph said, As for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. The third thing is the cause of the promise. We know that all things were together for good, but don't get the idea that things inherently, in and of themselves, automatically work for good. Greek scholars tell us that literally the verse says, we know that God works all things together for good. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul clarifies this point. 
in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. If there was not a God in glory, there would not be the promise of Romans 8.28 in the Bible. God is not dead. He is alive and well. He's not sick. He's not worn out. He's not even old. It is God who made this promise. He is the cause of it. The fourth thing is the condition of the promise. It's not axiomatic. It's not automatic. The promise has a condition. What is the condition? We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. And if you don't love God, you can't claim this promise. The condition is that we must be lovers of God. Haters of God cannot claim the promise. Some people may be able to sing better than we can sing. Others may be able to be to teach better than we can teach. Preach better than we can preach. Lead better than we can lead. Give more than we can give. But can we love God? That above all things pleases and honors God. The first and great commandment is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. The fifth thing is the purpose of the promise. It is about those who are called according to his purpose. What is his purpose? In Romans 8, 28 and 29 we read, We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the key. It is the good that all things are working together for, to make us like Jesus, to be conformed to his image of his son. There is no higher good than to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Many times this promise has been travelized. For example, someone might be driving down the road and a tire will blow out. The person may say, oh well, the Bible says that all things work together for good. Maybe there's a sale on tires. This isn't what the verse means. The good is not to make us unnecessarily healthy or happy, but to make us holy, to make us like Jesus. If the goal of our lives is not to be like Jesus, that goal is too small. Our goal must be conformed to the image of God's Son. We may go through many dangers, toils, and snares, but one day we will be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever the circumstances that come to us, we can rely on God's promise in Romans 8.28. No matter our circumstances, no one can take this verse out of the Bible. And may Satan never take it out of your heart. So Rick Warren also has written about Romans 8.28, and it's called, God is working all things for your good. And here it is. God is good God and he has good plans for your life. Other people have bad plans for your life, and you may make some bad plans yourself, but God only has good plans for your life. Not everything in your life may be good. God didn't promise that. He didn't say everything that happens in your life would be, be good. Friend, we live on a broken planet. Nothing works perfectly. Your body is broken. It doesn't always work the right way. Your mind is broken. It doesn't always think the right way. The weather is broken. The economy is broken. Relationships are broken. Nothing is perfect. God did not promise us perfection. That's called heaven. In heaven, there is no sorrow, sadness, sickness, or suffering. We should not expect heaven to be on earth because the earth is filled with brokenness. But even in the middle of all the bro this brokenness, God has a good plan for your life. He has a, 
He is greater than your bad choices, and he can fit even foolish decisions into a good plan. What a God. He can turn crucifixions into resurrections. The Bible says in Romans 8.28, We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. This is not a promise for everybody in the world. Not everything is working together for good for everybody, but everything is working working together for good for those who say, God, I give you my life. I want to fulfill the purpose that you made for me. And even then, it doesn't say all things are good. It says that they all work together for your good, even the bad and even the bitter. Have you noticed that when you make a cake, the individual ingredients doesn't taste good? Flour by itself does not taste good. Raw eggs, they don't taste good. Vanilla by itself does not taste good. But mix it all together and you create a tasty masterpiece. When you let God work all the ingredients together, God can take the bitter, put it in the batter, and make you better. Why? Because he's a good God. The more you pray, the better you're going to know your purpose. And the better you know your purpose, the more God can use everything in your life even the bitter and the broken things. So next, I'm going to introduce a song to you by Tommy Walker, and it's called Good News. You guys ready for the Spirit of the Lord to come upon you? Bring good news? Here we go. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news bring good news. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news. Oh, to bring good news. He has sent me to bring comfort, healing and freedom for the captives in darkness. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me bring good news, to bring good news. There's power and anointing lives within me, to bring good news, to bring good news. There's power and anointing lives within me, to bring good news, oh, to bring good news. Bring good. 
What a great song by Tommy Walker, and here's what he stated about this song. This song is taken from Isaiah 61, 1-3. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor of the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, and bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Our Lord Jesus himself was anointed by the spirit of his mission on earth, and as his followers, so are we. When Jesus commands us to go into all the world and preach the gospel, he isn't sending us out with our own ideas, talents, and abilities, but with his power and anointing. Let's be reminded that we are proclaiming the good news, the greatest news of all history. Our sins can be forgiven. We can be rescued, set free, comforted in our mourning, and our darkness turned into the light. My prayer is that this song will remind us all of the privilege and joy found in sharing God's love and message of the cross. So next, I'm going to read you a story, and it's called, Where Are the Lamps? In a certain mountain village in Europe several centuries ago, or as the story goes, a nobleman wondered what legacy to leave his townspeople. At last, he decided to build them a church. Nobody saw the complete plans until the church was finished. When the people gathered, they marveled at its marvelous beauty. But one person noticed an incompleteness. Where are the lamps, he asked. How will the church be lighted? The nobleman smiled. Then he gave each family a lamp. Each time you're here, the area in which you sit will be lighted. But when you're not here, some part of God's house will be dark. Some clever nobleman that was, don't you think? Today, we live in a world of darkness, a darkness in which even our secular problems solvers are beginning to stumble, in spite of our social conscience. All around us is evidence of ignorance, illiteracy, and dark imaging. Romans 2.19 tells us that we, as Christians, are the light for those who are in the dark. But the world is so big, you might say, our lamp is so small. Yes, but I believe we can still light up some small part each day. After all, look at the star-struck heavens. Have you ever noticed how small each star looks in the distance? Yet put them together, 
Those tiny jewels can light up the darkest night. Not one of those little lights of heaven is ever missing or else the heaven would be less bright. I believe each of us is like a star or a lamp, if you will. And yes, I'm convinced that we can make this world a better place. It all begins with the desire expressed in Michelangelo's prayer. God, grant me the desire always to desire to be more than I can ever accomplish. This day, I encourage you to let God's light your lamps with his fire, the Holy Spirit, and to allow him to send you in a new direction today. Perhaps you might meet someone who needs you today. Put on a bright face whether you feel like it or not. I guarantee you that the gladness will come. Do you remember at the beginning of the story what the nobleman said to the congregation? You too have a great opportunity to let your light shine for Christ. Be the church Jesus wants you to be. Remember, we will never change the world by going to church. We will only change the world by being the church, and the church is not something you go to. It's a family you belong to. So Billy Graham was asked a question regarding the subject we're talking about today. And the question was, there is a phrase that bothers me, and that is the saying that all things work together for good. How does that actually work? And Billy Graham's answer is this. There are many sayings people use, but they have no idea where they come from. Many of them come straight from God's word, the Bible, as in having the patience of Job. God's discipline is one of wisdom. Heredius Bonar said, What deep wisdom then must there be in all his dealings? He knows ex exactly what we need and how to supply it. The time and the way and the instrument are all according to the perfect wisdom of God. When Charles Colson was sent to prison for his participation in the Watergate scandal, it was the wisdom of God that utilized his sentence. A judge may have been the human instrument through whom God worked, but the result was God's plan for the life of a man who ministered to thousands inside and outside of prisons around the world. In this case, all things did work together for good. The wisdom of God's discipline may be obscured when we are in the midst of suffering. The faith chapter in the Bible, Hebrews 11, contains a list of some of God's great heroes, among them Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses. Many were gloriously delivered from hardship because of their faith, but they still went through difficulties. This is what it means when scripture declares, and we know that all things were together for good to those who love God. Let's not miss the meaning of this passage. God loves mankind, but he tenderly cares for his own. For those who have received him as their savior and walk with him in the new life that he gives. It's so comforting to know that God is working all things for our good, isn't it? That is, until we realize that his idea of good is often very different than our own. We've all experienced this at some point. Perhaps we have prayed for something only to receive the very opposite of what we've longed for. And other times a path we pursued with great energy suddenly redirects, or an expectation we've had unravels before our eyes. These experiences from crossroads that all Christians will eventually face. When our untested faith in God's goodness is suddenly challenged, we're left with the question, how can I believe God works for my good when what he's allowing seems far from it? Lately, I've freshly wrestled with this question. I mentioned on a verse we often run to and often misunderstood, and that again is, and we know that 
For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And again, out of Romans 8:28. As we read this verse, we first have to understand what Paul means when he says, For those who love God, all things work together for good. What is our good and what is our purpose to answer that? We have to look at the verse that follows. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And that's out of Romans 8, 29-30. In other words, the good God has promised his children is to conform them to the image of Christ for the purpose of bringing himself glory. So here's the encouragement for us if we're facing circumstances that seem far from good. God is using our afflictions to produce the good we would desire had sin not blinded our hearts and minds. Here are three ways God uses affliction for our good and his purposes. He exposes what we love. Do not love the world or the things in the world. For anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. God is a jealous God. He loves us too much to allow us to settle our heart's affections on the world. Therefore, he uses our trials to test our faith and challenge what and who we really love most. For those who love God, affliction serves as a chiseling tool in his hand of our divine sculptor, chipping away at all that competes for our affections. Gradually, in his severe mercy, he chips away good things from our life to loosen our grip on our earthly home, to fill our empty hands with more of himself, and to draw us heavenward. He does not remove anything from us that he will not abundantly replace with something far greater than we could ever have imagined. God truly is working all things together for good, the eternal good of those who love him. He humbles us. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, out of 1 Peter 5 and 6. Suffering wakes us up to our frailty and sinfulness. While we may have been able to live under the smokescreen of our outward goodness and perceive control for a time, suffering opens up our eyes to reality. When affliction presses in on us, it brings us low and reveals what's truly in our hearts. As discouraging as this can be, God uses it for our good to reveal how desperately sick we are apart from His grace. Through it, God shows us miraculous and magnificent salvation in Christ truly is. Over time, as the Spirit humbles us under God's mighty hand, our plea for changed circumstances begins to lessen and our plea for changed hearts begins to increase. This is truly mark of God's faithfulness to his promise to work all things together for the good of those who love him. He loves us far too much to settle for giving us temporary comforts and pain-free lives that blind us to our need for him. God knows that the short-term trials of this life are not worth comparing to the treasures that await us for all eternity in his presence. He points to the cross, but it was the Lord's God's plan to crush him and cause him grief. 
Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's God's plan will prosper in his hands. Out of Isaiah 53.10 Joni Erickson Tata said, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. There is no greater evidence at this than the cross of Jesus Christ. God permitted what he hates, the sacrifice of his son, to accomplish what he loves, salvation for all who will put their trust in him. As Christians, we need to look at the words of Romans 8.28 through the lens of the cross. If we assume that it means God is working through all things to bring about a comfortable, prosperous, pain-free life on earth, we will quickly question his love, faithfulness, and goodness, and we certainly won't follow him for long. But if we grasp that the good he promised us is rooted in the same good brought about through the cross, we will humbly submit ourselves to what he allows, trusting that our suffering, through painful in the moment, is working for our eternal good, namely, to reflect the image of Christ. This is the greatest good that God can bring about in our lives, not only to transform us into the image of Christ, but to change our heart's desire to align with his. The deepest joy I've experienced in my life has come through God removing many good things from my life and opening my eyes to how much I seek joy and satisfaction in the, in the things apart from Him. It has brought about greater awareness of how undeserving I am of His forgiveness and how sinful I am apart from His grace. So we need to look to the cross. What are you facing that feels far from good? Look to the cross and remember that things aren't always as they seem. As Randy Alcorn said, Good Friday isn't called Bad Friday because we see it in retrospect. We know that out of the appalling bad come inexpressible good, and that good trumps the bad. Although the bad was temporary, the good was eternal. If someone had delivered Jesus from his suffering, Jesus could not have delivered us from ours. Let's look to Christ in whatever circumstances we are facing. We can trust that he will be faithful to his promise, who work all things together for the good of those who called according to his purpose. And this will be for our joy and for his glory. And I'm going to end the episode today with a poem called You and Then. If you are successful, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and frank, people may cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. What you spend years building, someone could destroy overnight. Build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, they may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough. Give the world the best you've got anyway. You see, in the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway from Mother Teresa. And so that brings us to the end of our episode today. I hope everybody enjoyed it. So next week's episode is going to be on repentance. And my ending prayer is always that God blesses the path you're on with him and that you embrace that path. You can catch me at positivelightpodcast at gmail.com. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Anywhere you download your podcast, you can get my podcast, also EMS 2020, and the medical stuff all for free. I hope everybody liked it. I hope everybody had a great week. God bless. We'll catch you next week.